Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategy in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the man who killed midrange, Shane Beeps. Stan, long time no see, my friend. I know. I saw you less than a week ago, but it feels like forever. It does. It was it was so fun. It was so nice to see you all play some modern, drink some drinks. Yeah, the first time I saw you was in the basement of our next co-host, the godfather himself, Dave Harbarger. That's right. I'm the man in the basement, all alone with me and my beer. Is that Black Flag? Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's the B-side to TV party. Okay, sure. All right, and last but not least, cool but not cold it's our resident snowman zach cone <laughs> <laughs> did you did you fall off at the end there or is that, you think it's pronounced? How, how are we doing tonight stan so great so great happy to have all four of you in my head all over again right off the bat i want to give a shout out to a new friend of the show mark who shared a deck with us via twitter And we're going to take a closer look at his deck, but we really want to welcome all of our listeners to share lists with us too. We're always eager to hear what our listeners are winning with at their local tournaments or even MTGO leagues. And who knows, a deck submission could turn into a future topic on the show. So keep them coming. Uh, Also, thanks again to everyone who's been sending us feedback and support in general via Twitter, email, Reddit. I've been getting text messages from strangers wow wow really that's amazing it means a lot to us to hear from our new fans and to hear from our friends who like the show so thanks for that and to give back a little bit to the community that we're building here i will be handing out dive down pins this sunday at scg indianapolis so Stan, are you going to be there on saturday too or just sunday so we're driving down Saturday. We're not playing in the open, the standard open, and we're not planning. I'm not planning to do side events on Saturday, but I might do a pop in just to check out the cent- convention center. Say hi to all the fans that'll surely be waiting for you. The throngs of, of mo- thirsty modern players waiting for Stan's arrival. I'm going to post a sexy photo of myself to the Twitter so people know what I look like and how to find me. Perfect. Uh, I, I do have one thing to say here quickly. We're going to have pins, asterisks. We don't have the pins in our possession yet. Here's really hoping that they are done being made uh, by Friday so Stan can pick them up before he goes on Saturday or else we are going to drag, mercilessly drag this pins company on the podcast next week. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, we, we did put in kind of a rush order. So if it doesn't happen, I'll give them out the next time I see you in Indianapolis yeah. or wherever. No, it's exciting. Sam, what are you going to play? Or is it top secret? I'm probably almost certainly going to play blue-red Arclight because that's my favorite deck right now and probably my best chance to get some wins. But my goal is, I guess, to do better than 5-4 or at least as good as 5-4 because that's been my best result in a nine-round tournament. So if I, I, if I can keep improving on that level, it would be a win for me. I think that's a super reasonable goal. I'm nothing if not reasonable. Yeah, reasonable Stanislav. Okay, before we hop into the real goody-goodies, we need to touch on this week's banned and restricted announcement, which hit 
modern, right in the face. I mean, I wish I could feel really excited about this. Like I saw, like, of course, some memes about KCI being finally gone and stuff like that. But I seriously never saw it once. So it feels like like a tournament oppressive deck is gone. But uh, to me, it's not going to change anything, I don't think. We had a whole episode about this thing. The thing that did happen, we had an episode about. Yes. I mean, Dave called it. Way to go, Dave. I mean, it was pretty obvious. I just took the most the, the most the most simple answer and said, this is what's going to happen. I think that there's some other text in the, in the announcement that Casey Howard's going to be banned that is pretty uh, worth talking about for a second. And that's that both Ancient Stirrings and Mox Opal are apparently on the ban radar as well. In some form or another, they're going to let them keep going for now. But, um, you know, Zach had some notes about Mox Opal last time. So I don't know if he wants to give a couple of bullet points on how he's feeling about the fact that Mox Opal survived to uh, break another day. Yeah. Um, I, I can't say I'm surprised that it's still here, but I, and I, I do like that they said anything. I'm surprised that they made these comments. They typically don't uh, go that far for what's, you know, on the fringe of things. I think that the points they make about in ancient stirrings, having pretty restrictive deck building cost and that you need a lot of certain car- kinds of cards in your deck for those is a somewhat viable argument, but those decks are also just very good. And the restrictions tend to not be as big of restrictions when they're all just good cards. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think it's going to come back to get us? Do you think we're all going to be complaining about hardened scales in the next quarter? Or what What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I think that hardened scales is a very silly deck and it definitely is increased and powered by Mox Opal. Hmm. But I don't know if banning Mox Opal honestly makes that deck, it makes it less consistent and fast, but it's still a very good deck. Anybody else have any thoughts about the fact that Opal is continued to live another day? I mean, I'm mostly happy that Stirrings is still here. I think, uh, you know, what they're basically saying is they have a lot more data than we do, honestly. And so they're able to see if Stirrings decks are, are winning at a crazy rate, uh, at least on Magic Online and also with tournaments. So, I mean, right now they're con- they're continue- they're considering Ancient Stirrings to be fair. And so for that, I think that enables some interesting strategies, and I'm happy that it's still around. One last thing I guess we should talk about here is the discussion around our friend Stoneforge Mystic, which seems to come up literally every time there's a banned restricted announcement. Anybody have any thoughts about that, or are we just kind of like, we don't care, and then if it happens, it happens? Their argument was pretty disingenuous, I think. It was there was basically like, you know, uh, they didn't see this in this on the ban announcement, but they said it via was it Forsyth's Twitter? Yeah, Aaron Forsyth said this over Twitter. So he was essentially like, you know, blue, white and Jeskai strategies were actually, you know, as we talked about a few episodes ago, um, some of the most powerful uh, decks decks in 2018 across all the GPs and that and for therefore they don't need Stormforge Mystic although I mean, Stormforge Mystic doesn't really go into those types of control strategies at all so it just seemed kind of odd to lump those two things together Stan what do you think I think Forza's tweet all but confirms that Stoneforge is never going to be modern legal unless Blue White or Jessica Control fall out of the meta, which seems to be their threshold for judging how viable this one card is, it seems like they just don't want it even in the mix. So hopefully people will get that message. If that's the case, hopefully people will get that message because it is kind of funny that every three months the price of Stoneforge spikes and you get these hoax pictures on Reddit of Stoneforge being legal online and it's just, it's nonsense and it's just, I think it's wasting everybody's time. And 
we have better things to talk about in this format, whether or not this card that's really strong and illegal in modern is going to suddenly rear its head again. Yeah, and just to touch real quick on, I, I talked about deck building restrictions for those previous two cards. Stoneforge Mystic does not put a very big deck building restriction on you because you run her and what, two or three other equipment and equipment's usually just kind of good anyway. So they're cards that are fringe playable that you get to cheat out. Yeah, exactly. And they let you, it's like a very small toolkit kind of yeah, exactly. um, package that you could add to uh, a... <clears throat> to a deck like taxes or whatever so that's i think that's all i we should probably say about stoneforge but it's a good point that there's not a big restriction on including it in a list that wants a a two drop for uh two right so yeah kci is gone um i think the tournament metagame and the spikier game stores will be better off for it but uh for us i mean i don't think it really impacts me too much but um i think everyone is the format's better off for it for kci being gone yeah i agree too i will never miss seeing kci on coverage <laughs> at all Truth. ever yeah modern tournaments are probably going to get a little bit more interesting to watch i think too honestly especially the the last few that were super kci heavy so that's a plus all right let's dive into a recent tournament because of pre-release this past weekend there weren't any big name paper tournaments but there were a couple magic online events with some pretty interesting decks sort of in their top eight yeah there was a, a modern challenge on the 20th of january and we can just maybe run through the top eight and talk about any particularly interesting card choices sure so uh number one was affinity and the that was the only interesting thing about that list was it was running uh two in soul artifact which is a card that i saw a lot played in sort of casual decks or budget modern decks back when i started playing mm-hmm. so it was in a extremely powerful uh Standard deck right. at one point yeah, in time. Remember Don't that forget. one? Yeah, that was a great, great pro tour for sure. I think that was the one that Joel Larson ended up winning with burnt with a mono red deck, but the Soul Artifact deck was very, very fun to watch. So interesting to see that show up. I think I think Soul worked in this particular deck because the pilot, Boston seven five two five, was doing three main deck etch champion. And I know that's a card that sometimes fluctuates how many you put in the main. So when you have protection from all colors, it's probably safer to give them this enchantment aura, which is otherwise something that makes you vulnerable to getting two for one. Second place was a, a blue moon list that maybe we can touch on in a second. Uh, third was Grixis Death Shadow, pretty stock. Fourth was a blue black Ladrazi Emerge deck. Fifth, Abzan Value. Sixth, Burn. Uh, Burn was running a four Skewer the Critics. Uh, seven, pretty stock infect, and eight, pretty stock Grixis Death Shadow. Let's talk about this this blue-black Eldrazi deck, though. Sure. It looks familiar. It looks similar to this deck that friend of the show, Simon, recently won a local modern Nerd Rage event with. Seems pretty good. Yeah, it's the it uses the Emerge mechanic, where you can cast this spell by sacrificing creature and paying the difference in the mana cost and the Emerge cost. So it runs some of the higher-costed Eldrazi so that you can power out with uh, the Adrazi Temple or the Gemstone Caverns, and you can get you know uh, a five for five, two you know making them discard two cards on you know turn four or five or something. Abundant Maw, the most expensive Lightning Helix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow, is this really a thing? Apparently, now that I mean, I saw when Simon won that that Nerd Rage uh, tournament because uh, Stan pointed out the results, but that's so interesting to see it kind of. I mean, it has to have moved from that up to 
Moto. Maybe not has to, but this is interesting because this is this I've never seen this deck anywhere else before. Yeah, I've uh, I played against it in person, and it, it felt a lot like it just felt very good. And like, oh wow, that's a lot of value. I'm losing now. Okay, that's how Eldrazi always feels when it's working. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's just that deck. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I don't understand entirely what makes this deck work less frequently, except perhaps a ton of removal and a control heavy meta because Reality Smasher and Thought Not Seer are just some of the most dismal cards to play against. They're so good. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and also Chalice of the Void is just a card that will win you games. Especially mm-hmm. right now where everyone's cantripping for days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the big thing here that, that goes on is, like, this deck also has that colorless Eldrazi thing where they um they can exile their hand with Serum Powder, right? Right. When, the, when you draw it and you end up getting a bunch of Eternal Scourges in exile and then you can play them for extra value so you kind of end up starting with like an eight or nine card hand because you're just playing eternal scourge over and over again yes he was good then it has all the other value eldrazi on top of that so i wonder if this is maybe a better version of colorless eldrazi one that has a little bit more play a little bit more kind of flexibility in what it's trying to do i don't know interesting deck do you guys want to talk about this blue moon deck or no since I played a fair amount of Blue Moon in my life, I, I have a few reactions, though I've never tried the main deck Relic Plan, which has grown more popular in the Rise of Phoenix. I and, have. Well, yes, you have in Scred, but I meant in Blue Moon, I haven't tried main deck Relic, which seems like pot- potentially a problem for the deck since it's relying oh, on, on Snapcaster Synergies. It, to me, the way I see this deck, and maybe it plays differently, but I think it's just metagamed. And I don't know if this is the type of deck that is going to necessarily get you through an LGS, unless your LGS is playing all Phoenix and Dredge decks. That's the only way a control deck's going to win, right? Is if it's excessively metagamed. I mean, I think that's that's a probably what our contention is over the last couple of episodes, is that if you want to be on control, you better be really good and you better be really tapped into the meta of your local store. Yeah. I think the 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 burn list, isn't that didn't this burn list run like Bomac Couriers and Atarka's commands? Yeah, this is a deck that a new kind of version of burn where they put Bomac Courier into it, apparently to enable um spectacle. Oh, and I think one one thing that's funny is that I I think from this list they were enabling spectacle to be able to do the lightning you know, skewer the critics so they get another lightning bolt or lava spike, basically. But I played in a league over this. The first league that I managed to play after um, Ravnica Allegiances or Alliances or whatever came out um, was against this deck. And given what my spoiler cart pick was, they went, the first person I played went turn one Bomac Carrier, attack me, turn two, play a second Bomac Carrier, attack me with both, and then they played light up the stage. With yes. your second lane, and I was like, "Irony, great, great." My yeah, the irony. My pick is coming right at me right away, and um, it was kind of insane. Dave, you should have opened up the chat and said, "Hey, it's me, Dave from the podcast. Clearly, yeah. you're a big fan." Yeah, exactly. Clearly, you figured it out before I did. Um, I think it's interesting. I think both of those cards are going to are which Zach had skewer the critics last week that he talked about. I think there's going to be a um a good amount of both of those popping up until they figure out the right blend, basically. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think uh, for Bomat Courier, it's interesting because it sort of fits into the thing we talked about maybe on the first episode where losing cards from the top of your deck is most likely a good thing and how people undervalue that. And I think that maybe that's why Bowman Courier is becoming 
more plays that people are maybe becoming more aware of that principle or just fitting better into the deck. Yeah. I mean, there's no downside to just putting a bunch of cards under Bowman Courier. Yeah, exactly. If it dies, you get it's just kind of, it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. The the thing that is really wild is just to see Bowman Courier kind of as a redundant effect to light up the stage. All of a sudden, there's a card, like a card advantage engine in Burn that maybe is worth playing. And um, that's really weird and something that I kind of discounted or maybe a couple of us discounted on the last podcast. But I'll tell you what, when I was playing against this deck, they basically had four cards in their hand all the time. Seems good. That's what you want. And that's pretty tough against Bird where you're like, yes, I can win this game if I just run them out of cards. And then you're like, wait a minute, they have four cards again? Wait a minute, they have two in their hand and two in exile? What's going on here? So there was a Mox this weekend as well, right, Zach? Yeah, yeah, there was. And it was uh, won by KCI, which is no longer with us, but I guess it goes out with a bang, right? Bye. Yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. I think this might have been the only tournament, the only modern tournament on like a big big ish stage that had KCI at the same time as Ravnica allegiance cards. Oh, it's interesting. Kind of a weird thing to think about. There was a, what, really? a, like a four day window or something. I think, I think it was like a three day window, four day window. Exactly. It's funny because the burn list in this mocks, not to uh, spoil it, but didn't run any of the new cards. Well, not people don't hop on them right away all the time. Yeah. Also, can I mention how much I love the fact that every time you open up one of these uh, Magic Online lists that is in a different language? I know. I just don't get how, why that happens. The Conjuro Artifacto. Why does Wizards.com always think I'm in a different country? It makes I, no sense. Maybe they're doing this intentionally. But the cards are in English, too, which is, you know, interesting. Yeah. Maybe they're trying so, to teach us something. Oh, you know what? I'm learning little by little. Tierra. Because this was a dead format, just just burn through this one, Zach. Sure. Uh, second place was uh, GDS uh, versus Death Shadow. Third and fourth was Jund, which is yes! interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we don't talk about Jund a whole lot on this podcast. Maybe that's something that's going to change. Uh, fifth was Carlos Aldrazi, so not the blue-black emerge one, but once again, Chalice is pretty good. Uh, sixth, Scales Affinity. Seventh, Burn. And eighth, Storm. Can I mention before we go to the fact that Phoenix wasn't showing up for a change? It's really odd to me that these two Jund lists have no Assassin's Trophy. Like the card that was supposed to sort of be a catch-all, you know, revitalizer to the to the mid hmm. black green mid range, no Assassin's Trophy at all. They're running Abrupt Decays, um, you know, just one Abrupt Decay, uh, a couple of Maelstrom Pulses in there. Um, I think it's a really interesting choice. Like the the Jabberwocky guy at six and two, I know is like a Jun grinder. So if he doesn't think his Assassin's Trophy is worth running running right now, then maybe it's not. That is wild. That is a, good, a great point. I did not notice when I was looking through this tournament. Yeah, no, neither did I. That's um, pretty, pretty interesting. And uh, both lists are running Bloodbraid Elf as well. Oh, I would hope so. And so what? there's no Phoenix in this top eight. Yeah, I, the note that I had here was that um, the highest Phoenix deck in this tournament was 15th. And the highest in the modern challenge that we talked about a couple minute ago, a minutes ago was 16th and 17th both. So I don't know. What do you guys think is going on there? Peaks and valleys. I think Phoenix yeah. players are throwing the game so the deck doesn't get banned. Oh, right. The only reasonable explanation. Yeah, I think it's probably sample size and pe- uh, like uh, you know percentage of the meta and peaks and valleys, like Shane said. Yeah, I mean we'll see if it's a trend. That's the that's what you have to look at. You know, of course, in this stuff is what's the, what are the trends looking like? We saw Phoenix win for like you know what, like six straight weeks or something like that. So I don't think it's going to suddenly just die off, but it could get metagamed out pretty quickly. 
Yep. And by the way, this is the last stuff we're going to talk about for Phoenix this episode. Yes. Okay. Turn the page. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed is that Grixis Death Shadow appears three times across the top eight of these two events. So let's put a pin in that real quick. We're going to do a break. And then when we return, we'll do this week's dive down on Death Shadow and the different decks that play that card. Stay with us. And we're back. This is really exciting to me because I'm already working on building Grixis Death Shadow. In fact, Shane, while you were in town over the weekend, you sold me a card that I intend to play. The blue-black Fetchland. It's called Polluted Delta, my friend. Learn it. Love it. Oh, I forgot what it was called. But uh, yeah, this is a deck that's been on my radar for a while, especially since it came back. But when I first got into Modern... It was probably at the height of its original popularity. Yeah. I always thought it was a really cool deck. Thoughtseize seems like a very strong card. Oh, it is. And I I am so here for this conversation. That's awesome. I wanted to point out one quick thing here, which is that recently, might be a surprise to people, but uh, Death Shadow was at the top of the metagame share on Goldfish for three or four days before it kind of went back down to second. So I don't know if people are realizing quite how much this deck is being played, at least in the, the recorded data that uh seth and the boys have but it's it's up towards the top at the moment yeah i i see the deck pretty frequently online when i play that's uh there's lists that run main deck uh colgon's command lists that don't etc and there's small differences but i do see the stark archetype of grixis death shadow quite a bit when i play online and even my lgs yeah so the segment i think what we thought about is because grixis death shadow is back we wanted to dive down into the various Death Shadow decks. Talk a little bit about what they're doing, how they're trying to execute their plans, what the differences between the two major archetypes are. And also, both uh, a few of us took uh, them through some leagues and did some testing with them. So we wanted to talk a little bit of our experiences with them and what our thoughts are related to them. Yeah. I have a question right up the top. Please. <laughs> Shane, when I first met you, you yes were, you were playing a little bit of death shadow back then and yeah i was doing a little bit of john a little bit of grixis yeah so let's start with grixis can you share a few words on how the deck has changed over the last 18 months or two years i think the main thing i've noticed and i've talked about this the past few episodes when we bring up gds is that it's a little bit more aggressive right now um, which is funny because that's what the early builds of Death Shadow were extremely aggressive decks, and they were really looking to just finish off the opponent quickly. And then Grixis started capitalizing on the grindiness and the ability to, you know, have recursion with your Coligan's commands and just kind of and, and Snapcaster mages, right. Right now, it's actually speeding up a little bit. So it has more main deck teamer battle rages. It's trying to really set up some ultra fast delved um, Gourmet Gourmet anglers. Yes, thanks, Dave. Sure. Setting up up fast Gourmet anglers, setting up some uh, large death shadows, and really getting in there quickly with the teamer battle rage to finish off the game. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to note is just. Um, how fast and and kind of suicidal the early uh, Death Shadow decks were that these were based yeah, off exactly. of. So the early one was was this deck that was kind of like 
you know, it ran Thoughtseize and it ran Gitaxian Probe and it ran Fetchlands and it ran Dismember and like it also ran Wild Nicotle and Monastery Swift Sphere and Mutagenic Growth. It was really a deck that I think was sort of set up to play on the synergy mostly between Phyrexian Mana and um, Thoughtseize and Death Shadow. So it was, people just called it Death Shadow Zoo. And so like, like Shane said, when Git Probe got banned, there became this kind of shift that was going on. And, and also it was around the same time that a fatal push was printed that really kind of pushed forward this kind of idea of a black based yeah. kind of mid range deck that had access to a ton of really cheap spells. Both the threats are cheap, that disruption is cheap and the creature removal is cheap. Yeah, everything so you cheap, get this right. whole kind of suite of things that is all about these one mana mana spells that kind of can turn into a quick advantage. And then you turn that things in the graveyard. Basically, you leverage that advantage to put cards in the graveyard. You turn it into a delve threat, basically. Yeah. So really, what Death Shadow decks are doing is they're trying to disrupt their opponent. They run like eight hand disruption spells and the four Thoughtseize and four Inquisitions. And then they stick that large threat and they ride that threat to victory, usually combined with, again, with the team of battle rage we mentioned. And so, because what that does is it gives uh, the attacking creature double strike, but if it has power four or greater, which is basically everything you're playing in a deck like that, then it also gets trampled. So this is one of my favorite cards ever, by the way, it's so fun. I don't know if you guys know that, but uh, Khan's Fate Reforged and Khan's is one of my favorite limited formats ever. And I used to draft the Team or Battle Rage deck basically every time in that format. So I'm so glad that that card has a home in Modern. So everyone probably knows this, but Death Shadow is the namesake card. And so it is essentially a 13-13, but it loses uh, one power and one toughness for each point of life you have remaining. So as you know, as soon as you're at nine life, no, I'm sorry. As soon as you're at 12 life, right. Then it's a one, one. And as soon as you're at two, at a, you know, 10 life, it's a three, three. So that's how that works. So basically the more life you lose, the stronger your death shadow are. And so when you're casting a bunch of thoughtsies to accelerate your life loss while also disrupting your opponent's game plan, you're fetching and shocking to get your death shadow, you know, your life total low and your death shadows big while also filling your graveyard to get your dull threats out. You're running dismembers to also get your life total low. So all those things contribute to just sticking a big death shadow, death shadow fast and riding it. Right. And we should say it's a big threat fast, really, because Death Shadow is it's important, but the Delve threats are really important, too. Right. Let's say it's not impossible for them to get. A, I've seen anglers on turn two before. Right. And yes. Then they tap with that and it's they have protection. They have stubborn denial. They have fatal push for your things. They have dismember. Then they, you know, and cards like dismember where technically paying the two life would be a drawback for most decks. You would be happy is on their game plan. So they have removal that feeds into their main strategy. Right. Sure. So let's talk about one thing that, so two things Zach brought up right there, uh, stubborn denial, which I think is a super important part of the Grixis death shadow list that we, we kind of haven't zeroed in on right now. Um, stubborn denial is absurd, right? Yes. Can you elaborate on yes? Oh, I, I was, no, I was, I was hoping that I was hoping that you would, Dave. I want um, to elaborate. I, I think stubborn denial stand. is just the best counter spell in modern and, Either it gets you because you've tapped out or they have a 4-4 or bigger out and then it's just a hard counter for one mana. There's no counterspell like it in the format. 
Well, it's an, it is a non-creature spell, which is, but that's in terms of this protect the queen strategy they're going for. Typically, it doesn't matter because even if they do stick a threat on the other side, you likely have some kind of removal to deal with it, or you've already thought to use it out of their hands, so you're not worried about it. Exactly. Can I make a confession? I always thought it was any spell. <laughs> oh. Welcome nope. to the new list. Hey, I'm learning about this deck on the podcast that I'm on. Exactly. That would be absolutely the best counterspell in modern. There would be no other spell like that in all of magic. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like better than mental misstep. Yeah. <laughs> it's better yeah, than so, force of will. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so Dave, Dave, go won't give us a little bit more about uh Grixis Death Shadow. So I was just going to say, kind of outline the the pillars of what makes this this deck in Grixis anyway. So basically what you have is you have cantrips. So you pick up some of that kind of, uh, you know, it plays Serum Vision. It plays Thought Scour. Thought Scour in this deck is basically like Dark Ritual. Yes. Like it is insane in this deck because you're powering up Snapcaster Mage. You're powering up Delve and you're drawing a card. So it's it's super powerful in this deck. So you have card selection in, in this. You have disruption in the in the form of cheap removal, cheap discard, and also counter spells that are all basically one to two mana per per uh, per spell. Sometimes some of the removal is is two mana. You, generally it's one. And then your threats basically you also play for one mana. So you play Death Shadow for one mana, you play Gurmag Angler for one mana, and then you also have a little bit of Grind. That's like the fourth pillar of this with Snapcaster Mage. And you used to have Coligan's Command, but you don't really have it anymore, it seems like, in the main deck anyway. Yeah, it's just too expensive at three. Sad day. But so the thing I was going to say really quickly is that's the the deck that's kind of the most popular. There has also been a companion deck in some ways whenever grixis death shadow seems to get popular there's another deck that comes with it and that is jund or traverse death shadow yeah i've been testing that this week as well i'll talk a little bit about it and so um i think what jund death shadow is trying to do is essentially have much of the base jund strategy which is you know hand disruption removal stick a powerful threat and and use that threat on a clear battlefield to keep getting damage in. Um, so what it really relies on is traverse the Uvenwald, which is why it's called traverse shadow sometimes. And what that is, is a single green mana that before you have four card types in your graveyard, which is called uh, delirium, a mechanic from the shadows of Innistrad block. So if you have four card types in your graveyard, it allows you to tutor, tutor up any creature in your deck. And so you can see how that's basically having a redundant copy of a number of threats in your deck, whether you want that Death Shadow because your life is low, whether you want a Tarmogoyf because your graveyard has like five different card types in it. Um, if you have some interesting sideboard options like uh, some Hoser creatures or even they've, they've been splash white versions that run like a Ranger of Eos to tutor up two more creatures out of your deck, like two more Death Shadows. Two more Death Shadows specifically. Yeah, specifically, exactly. yeah. So what Traverse allows the deck to do is grind really well in terms of fighting through removal and ensuring that you're going to have a creature in the battlefield. And it still runs Mishra's Bauble like the Grixis version does, but what the Bauble does here is it enables really easy Delirium and also makes for big Tarmogoyfs. And also it uh, lets you do things like if you don't really need another Bauble in the graveyard, you can keep one up to make your Fatal Pushes have Revolt, which is a nice little play too. It just gives you some options, something free to cast that lets you dig through your deck more quickly uh, and lets you and capitalizes on the rest of the deck's energy. 
Yeah. So I was going to take a second to like take some questions here for a minute, but I do want to talk. I do want to talk about Bobble for a minute though, just because I think that Bobble is a card that's really sort of confusing or kind of surprising to people, especially because when Grixis Death Shadow came around the first time, Bobble was not really in it. And Bobble started being used as tech in the Jund list because it enables Delirium for Traverse the Olin Vault. Yeah, so, there's a point where it was a $40 card because of that deck. Right, which is so crazy before it was reprinted in, in Iconic Masters. But yeah. um, So we should talk for a minute about why Bobble is still in the Grixis deck, even though there's no kind of immediately apparent payoff for that card being there. Well, I've I've heard this offset, and we, we could talk about the validity of it here, but I've heard that having it for those of your deck makes you have a 56-card deck. Yeah, especially combined with Street Wraith, which right. you have essentially, which we didn't mention earlier, another thing lets you peel through your deck while losing life, which is advantageous. Yeah, that's a key card that we kind of glossed over because it just draws a card for two. That's That's what it's for. Yeah, two life. Right. So would you guys agree with that, Maxim, that having these cards in your deck effectively starts you with eight or seven to eight less cards in your deck? Yes. So I would say that's sort of the level one thought on yeah. Mishra's Bobble. That that's kind of like, okay, what what's this card that has no downside? Um, it's zero casting costs. I have a delayed draw trigger on it. Most of that is just to make my deck feel smaller. Totally sound principle. But there's a lot more to it than that, too. So on top of the fact that it's free, it also gives you added information for how you maneuver your game plan. So Dave mentioned it being free is level one. I think level two is remembering that you can look at your opponent's top card in their library to get a sense of yeah. what you may have to look forward to or be aware of. Might even just tell you yeah, what do that all deck the time. It might just tell you what deck they're on because you can play this on right. turn Correct. one and start to plan ahead that way. Also, if you don't like the top card that you see in your deck with Bobble, for instance, if you're digging for something specific, you can often fetch it away because of that delayed draw trigger happens at the top of the next upkeep. Yeah, and it also lets you do things like if you saw a serum, if you played uh, a serum vision, it lets you draw the card that was on the top of the deck after the scries from serum visions right away as well. It also powers up Delve. It also as Shane said, powers up revolt on fatal push. So there's all these little tiny synergies with bobble that are kind of important for, for Grixis death shadow in particular to make sure that they get the most out of the cards that they do have to play. Yeah, it was weird. I remember the original time Mishra's bobble showed up in a list that people noticed was like a, a Patrick Chapin, like uh, prowess deck. Yeah. And it was basically just a free spell in that. Right. But um, people, I think, slowly realized how much application it had in decks that were looking to use the graveyard through uh, Delve and Traverse and Delirium and things like that. So it, it definitely has more application than just being a free spell for prowess. But I remember that when, when that when that showed up, it was just like, what the heck is this card? Right. He was like, it's so good with Monastery Swift Spirit. And everybody was like, wait, <laughs> it's so good with other things, too. Yeah, it's a card yeah. that uh, when I, I played back when this card was out, and I certainly misjudged it and thought it was just like a sort of like a, a do-nothing eh sort of card, you know? It, it's I feel like it, it really does take someone who gets the broader application of cards and is deeper in franchise in a format to see the many applications we just went through. 
and it just takes practice. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, just to kind of sit there and go through it and be like, okay, I have a bobble. What are all the things I can do with it right now that give me a tiny bit of edge in this game that I'm playing? Exactly. So Shane, you were mentioning how you had played uh, the Jun build a while ago, the, the Traverse build at least, and we're not seeing that pop up as in many, you know, top eight, top sixteen list. Even we're seeing only the Grixis version. Why do you think that this certain build has sort of taken popularity as the stock build? You mean the Grixis is stock versus kind of Jund? That, that's correct. Um, yeah, I was thinking. So I, I was getting a little bit Galaxy brand on myself. I was kind of thinking, oh, I think Jund feels underplayed right now. I think it offers a lot of what Grixis is doing while offering kind of more redundancy through the Traverse uh, package and the Delirium package. Um, but my experience with it, while not the biggest sample size, I took it through a league and I did a bunch of testing uh, versus Dave with it um, when we were face to face across the table again, which was really nice. Um, what it lacks is the ability to power out the Delve creatures sure. in the same way that the Grixis version does. And right now, I think the grindy nature that Traverse supports is less valuable than the speed and disruption through counter magic that the Grixis version supports. So, yeah. you know, in, in Grixis, you can run conditional counter spells in your sideboard, right? You can run like a disdainful stroke you can run a ceremonious rejection and just having access to those things to increase your counter spell package for specific matchups can be really powerful you know you're you're actually you're going through your deck much more quickly with the cantrips so you're really finding yourself top decking pretty often with the jund version i found where it's like i have no card selection here I'm just kind of relying on the top of my deck to give me what I'm hoping for. And that doesn't always show up in a Jun, Jun deck. You know, you always just hope if you draw the right half of your deck, it can accomplish things. But if you draw what you don't, if you don't draw what you need, then you're feeling pretty helpless. Uh, would you describe the Jun build as more mid-range and the Grixis build as more aggro? Or are they both mid-range? Are they both aggro? I, I think I think Grixis is a aggro mid-range and I think the Jund deck is a solid mid-range deck right now. Okay. Um, I and, and it's basically, I think it's, if you just counted the average turn on a deck like that, what it tries to win on, I think the Grixis deck is likely faster. You know, you're not playing any Delve threats in the uh, Jund version. If, if Fatal Push is making a comeback, like Jund versus Grixis, I'd rather be Grixis all day because you have the push to take care of um, all eight threats that the deck is going to present in terms yeah. of the goifs and the shadows. It's just, I think what it's, it's just too slow. It's trying to, it's too jundy. It's, it's too mid rangey. It's trying to ensure that it has the answers that line up with the threats. And as we know, that's always been more challenging than just simply presenting the threat yourself. Yeah, I, I will say there's a couple of things going on with the Grixis list right now that I got a little annoyed with when I was playing with it. Like, I actually weirdly think that Snapcaster Mage is not that great right now, which is kind of sad, or at least I didn't find myself having the time or the right spells in my graveyard a lot to actually leverage that into something that helped in the matchups I've played. But um, that might just be kind of small sample size stuff. I'm a little surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, because, no joke. Yeah, you know I love Snapcaster Mage. And not only that, but I've been punished so hard by Snapcaster Mage <laughs> when I'm playing against GDS since not only can they get back Bolt or a Counterspell, but Snapcaster Thoughtseize is killer. 
yeah, small sample size, maybe. My experience with Snapcaster has been that even sometimes flashing it in and a turn, not getting anything back and just start swinging with it can be good. And I have dealt with that. Yes. Yeah, and it's not it great. It's like not a ideal. desperation play. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. I've, I've lost to it. You know, I, I've been able to, cause they had that one where attacking with it. And then I finally typed back removal. And in response to it, they were able to snapcaster and then go into a counter spell, you know, like, Oh, right. okay, great. Now I'm getting two of them. Yeah, I mean, Snapcaster Mage is a real threat. Like people, people ser- seriously undervalue the um, what a two-one with a spell stapled to it is worth. I, re- I really think people constantly overwhelm. Sorry, under undervaluate that because just think about like mission briefing. How when everybody was like, "Oh, mission briefing is going to see so much play and all this stuff," and it's like, you guys, no. you're totally forgetting that the two mana two-one is worth a ton. Yeah, absolutely. Just in its own. Mission briefing will be able to get in for damage ever. Yep, exactly. So I don't really have too much else to say about Traverse. It was a little bit disappointing. Um, I felt like it was too slow. And again, like I said, uh, too Jundy. And for a guy who loves playing Jund, it felt a little bit sad to say that and realize it. Yeah, I think the the point we're trying to make here is that Jund is a better Jund than Traverse Shadow is at being Jund. It's sort of mid-range, threat, and answer heavy. It seems that if you want to go the Death Shadow route, Grixis is better. And if you want to play a Traverse deck, play Jund. Yeah, and I know uh, Dave probably has something to say about running some Grixis Shadow lately. Or do you want to just talk about some experiences you've had with the deck? Uh, I think I kind of want to talk through some of the level up questions that everybody has here first. Because it was way better than my like one league that I've gone through. <laughs> yeah. Recently, I mean, I was playing this deck when it went back at the beginning. I've always had kind of like a hard time getting good results out of it, but I've I've definitely played it a bunch. Sure. So Stan and Stan and Zach, do you guys have particular questions or? Yeah. So uh, I have a question. Um, in modern, I only play red, blue, and green. I don't play any black decks. So Whoa. I I don't use hand disruption, but I have it used against me quite a bit. And I often feel like, you know, when, when playing casually, someone will thought seize you and then later ask you like, hey, tell me what the right move was or if that was correct. And I feel like sometimes I will feel like they made the wrong move and later you'd be like, oh, I would love that card to win the game right now. So it, it's sort of a broad question. I don't know how you want to directly address this, but how how are you properly using Thoughtseize? You know, when you're doing a turn one Thoughtseize, what are you looking for? What's What are some good targets? That's a really broad question because Absolutely. so much of it is based on information. So we should just say, you know, it's relative to what your opponent is holding. And, you know, you don't always want to take the bolt from a deck that's running bolts. So well, some we'll of those heuristics can be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, so the the the, the main man of this strategy of black green strategies is Reed Duke. And he's written about how the primary thing you want to be able to do is punch a hole in their hand, right? So if they have a single removal spell and you're playing a deck that wants to take a creature, you're obviously going to take that removal spell. If they have multiple removal spells, taking a single one of them is not going to be that great right. for you, right? So the first that's what you really are looking for is what can I take out of their hand that either slows them down so much that it's it's really valuable to take out of their hand like a faithless looting 
when they're digging for a land. Like they keep a one lander with some high CMC spells or they keep a single lander with a mana dork, right? So if you don't have removal and you need to get rid of that dork, you'll take that. That is one of the biggest moments when a Thoughtseize deck can can really like take a huge leap on somebody is when somebody gets greedy and forgets that they're playing against a Thoughtseize deck or doesn't know yet. Yep, I keeps it. a one lander. I I've done it on the flip side of that all the time where I'm kind of like, oh, I'll sit down and wow, I have Faithless Looting and I have a land and then I have two Arclight Phoenixes. I'm good, you know. Well, you're not good. <laughs> <laughs> against against a lot of decks in modern and so you have to remember that this is this is out there and that's probably the most powerful thing that you can do on turn one really but a lot of it is i, I agree with what reed duke via shane said which is like figure <laughs> out what is the the unique card in the hand and get it out of there if i could channel reed duke in every aspect of life i think i'd be a lot better off he seems like a very nice person and we know you need help being nice we can add a caveat to that reduke heuristic too if you're playing against a combo deck. So let's say you're playing against Storm and they have Gifts Ungiven or Grape Shot, maybe even Past in Flames, because you could, you know, punish them for not having enough mana. But in a you know, depending on what you're playing against, sometimes removing the combo piece is what you want to do rather than looking for the singular outlier relative yeah, to what else is in their hand. Although, for example, in it with against a deck like Storm, I would almost be looking to take the cost reducer yeah, out of their hand if they had that. I would be like, buy to Baral or buy to a Goblin Electromancer, provided that I don't have removal of my own in my hand. You know what I mean? But it's I, I think it is it is really hard to figure out a heuristic here, other than try to make their hand um, re- remove the pieces that are unique in their hand. I guess I have a couple of scenario questions I wanted to ask about Thoughtseize to see what Shane thinks and what the rest of you guys think would be the right way to, to play it. Sure. Yeah. Do you, let's say that your hand is, your opening hand is uh, Watery Grave, Serum Visions, Thoughtseize, and four other cards that you can't play on turn one. Which card do you play first? So the question is, would, do you go Thoughtseize or, or Serum Vision first? Oh, and like a Grixis Death Shadow deck? Yes. Against an unknown opponent? Yes. I'm going to Thoughtseize. Yep. Because that lets me make decisions about my scries. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a different game. It's one and two, right? If you know what you're playing, you might see your visions. But if you don't know what you're playing, you're going to Thoughtseize. Yeah, I think the bias here is like 90-10 Thoughtseize. So something <laughs> to keep in mind is like you want to disrupt people's hands as early as possible, especially in modern, because... There are so many things that people can do on one, turn one. There's so many things that people can do on turn one plus turn two. I mean, it really is a turn four format, so you don't have a ton of time to really kind of get your your early game up and going. So the earlier you can make mess up their plans, the better. Mm-hmm. The other question is just a totally kind of rote thing that people should keep in mind is if you have two disruption spells in your hand, if you have a, an Inquisition and Kozilek and a Thoughtseize, what order do you play them in? Inquisition first, because you can play the Thought Seize a turn or two later to get some of the more expensive cards, but Inquisition only lets you take cards CMC three or less. So the cards that your opponent would be playing in those first few turns. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there could be maybe some argument that, you know, if you have a really crazy way to get your life total really low really quickly for a Death Shadow, you could just start casting your Thought Seizes, but I think that's a real marginal concept. Doesn't come up that often. No. Yeah. 
so I think those are two, uh, two really, I mean, I think this is a really good thing to just kind of check some boxes. Do, how do we get over the fact that they feel so bad to play in the late game? I think it's kind of like Aether Vile where you just look at it as like a cost of entry where sometimes I'm going to top deck this and it's going to suck or like a noble hierarch. Sometimes I'm going to top deck this and it will stink, but I'm glad I have it on turn one or two. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They're just those cards that are so good on the first couple of turns that you just bear the cost. Yeah, I, I think another part of this is that there are certain cards that that those colors can't mess with. For instance, if someone lands an enchantment against that deck, they don't have any way of interacting with it, right? It's there and they have to deal with it. So yeah. this allows them to deal with card types that are otherwise beyond their reach. Yeah. I mean, I talked about Primeval Titan recently. Our last episode, where we talked about Primeval Titan and Phoenix. This deck has a sort of similar problem with Primeval Titan until you get up to a really big shadow in the sense that there's a lot of removal in this deck, but none of it can kill a prime time. So you definitely want to have those kind of things uh, taken out by hand disruption. Exactly. So another topic that I think is interesting with a deck like this is that these kind of protect the queen strategies, as, as Shane called it earlier, often are decks that have very few threats in them right and there's other strategies that have uh, have a similar idea the problem with this is if you have an opening hand when you're trying to think about whether you want to keep a hand or you want to mulligan a hand what what do you think about keeping a hand that has no threats in it but has card selection in it for example like how do you feel comfortable shane when you take your opening hand and see that you don't have any tarmogoyfs or any death shadows but you have other stuff I really have learned to not keep those, especially in a dr- gen strategy, because you don't have a really good way of digging through your deck. Right. And in Grixis, what do you, with those of you who play cantrip decks, uh, Stan, like if you don't have a threat in like your Arclight Phoenix, sorry, I said it, uh, <laughs> deck, um, what do you guys, what do you guys typically do there? I go for it. <laughs> I don't know. It, it depends on how many cantrips you have in your hand, obviously. But yeah. two cantrips, I think, is usually two serum visions, especially that goes six cards deep. That's usually good enough to risk it because cantrip decks, even GDS, which wants to fill up the graveyard with by spending as little mana as possible, it's still a good idea sometimes to just spin the wheels since the reward might be high enough. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing for me here is I don't want to keep a hand that has only. Um, only cantrips in it. If I have cantrips in removal, maybe I'm still in to keep it. If I have just card selection, it makes me a little bit more worried because then I have no plan, right? I have no plan where I'm going to d- kill somebody else's threat or draw my, or play my own threat. So I, that's probably what I would need to be able to feel really comfortable doing that. So Zach, it's coming to my brain right now that you, the decks that you play primarily burn and scred probably have pretty good death shadow matchups. At least if you know what you're doing as a burn player, uh, am I crazy or, or are the matchups good or not? Yeah. So, I mean, for burn it is because if, especially if they don't know right away and they take five or seven damage on turn one, mm-hmm. that can, I mean, not, not seven. Yeah. They can take, they can take seven. Yeah. They can go down to 13 on turn one. That's just, Oh, I've won the game now. This is, unbelievable scred's a little more challenging because of the high number of non-creature spells i run that are just like blood moon on turn three and koth on turn four are things i need to do and when you are able to slow me down by a turn that's very bad Mm -hmm. but then 
something I want to talk about with this is a uh, lightning bolt in your hand and uh, hand disruption related to lightning bolt. Sure. So something that I've been struggling with and asking GDS players when I meet them. So, you know, my opening hand is a bolt and several other higher costed cards and they thought sees me. So do I cast the bolt then trying to, so they don't take it out of my hand for later. And then that, but I'm playing into their goal when I do that. Right. So they, they thought sees me before they see my hand, I'm going to bolt them so they don't take it. But is that the right call? Because that's putting them lower. So that's something that I've I've struggled with, and I I think I have a a formed opinion on it now. But I'd love to hear your guys' take on that. Hey, before the GDS players chime in, I, I want to take a stab at this because I have a rule of thumb whenever I play against the deck, which is mm-hmm. always bolt them, and it's an extension of the make them have it mentality. Since playing into their plan of lowering their life total makes it almost sound like you're never going to beat them because you're afraid to attack them for damage unless you can attack them for exaxes but you're not going to always make a big swing so if they fumble and they don't find the queen or if you're able to remove creatures or counter some of their spells and hopefully dodge a stubborn denial then you need to put on as much pressure early on as possible yeah i think what you have to do is think about what your game plan is right i don't think there's like a heuristic on this i think that it's really what is my deck trying to accomplish like if you're burn you're going to probably do you're probably going to cast whatever your cheapest direct damage spell is because that's probably what they'll end up taking yeah so you want to be able to chain together a number of spells through their late game counter magic especially so you know, you're not going to, like you said, Stan, is it's a matter, it's like a little bit of a dance, right? It's how much life can I take away from them versus how much life uh, is making their death shadows really huge. And so you have to really think about your role, understand your combat math. And that's why one reason that death shadow is so hard to play with and play against at times. Yeah, I think I would just think about what good is this lightning bolt in my deck? I think there are plenty of situations where there are better cards in your hand. And so I wonder if you really have to use the lightning bolt then to, to kind of make up for it, to just make sure that they don't take it. Yeah, that's a good plan. Like, like when you get, when you get thoughts, or inquisition, you can just say, if I was this player, what would I take? Right. And if it's not the bolt, then keep it. Right. If it's not exactly, because what you want to do is leave a card there that they might go, Oh my God, a lightning bolt. I'm going to take that. So they don't bolt me with it. And then you're like, sweet, I get to keep my Sark and Fireblood or whatever, which is, you know, would be a pretty bad choice by the the person playing Thoughtseize. But you know what I mean? <laughs> Lightning Bolt or a Planeswalker? Which one would you take? They usually take the Planeswalker for what it's worth. Oh, gosh. Player, most players are pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that sticks out to me, though, is that a lot of the decks that play Lightning Bolt are opting for the leverage to go to the face sometimes. So Jund comes to mind, and I guess Scred come to mind as more mid-rangey decks that perhaps don't have the option to burn an opponent out. But if you're on Jeskai or Blue Moon or Phoenix even, it seems like you need to do some of that face bolt damage because you may not have another way to close if they keep carving your hand or countering all your spells. I got to say this, this seems to be where I agree with Dave, what he said earlier, which is maybe you leave, I don't think you're going to win with the bolt, right? Like, so if you leave it in your hand and the rest of the stuff 
is maybe the, the, the cards you really want to cast like then you don't even give them the option to to not take the bolt and you keep it and you hope that they say oh okay like this bolt this maybe keeps me from playing my death shadow when it's only a three three because they'll bolt my death shadow so it's one of those things where i maybe might not cast it depending on how early we are in the game yeah i mean I, you definitely can win with a lightning bolt i think for sure but i think the point is you probably know what spell you you would be the most devastating to you and if lightning bolt is sort of a option that confuses things i would probably leave it be and confuse things i wouldn't make it easier for them at the same time you also don't want to give your opponents choices so reducing their choices this this is where you can't just rely on single heuristics right yeah it's interesting i actually think there are many situations in magic where you do want to give your opponents choices you know if they're taking perfect information I don't know why you would reduce the number of options because there's a good chance that they'll sit there and just think about it and then Mm -hmm. maybe they'll make the wrong decision. You know what I mean? So it's sort of, it's tough to, to figure it out. The other thing is, do you have something else to do with that mana? Sure. That turn where basically it's like, Hey, if it's turn one and they thought sees you and you have a lightning bolt and you feel like there's a decent chance that they might take it, maybe you should do it just to make sure you spend mana that turn. But that's not a good situation to be in anyway. So, can I throw sure. a wrench in this this discussion? More Please. wrenches, the better, Stan. Right. So let's say you have a steam vent up, and they thought Caesar Inquisition you, and you've got both bolt and opt. Do you want to cycle the opt, or let's say let's even take the bolt out? No, of it. you never, you you, you never, you never cycle the opt. Yeah, no way. Because th- th- then they get to maybe take the card you draw off of that. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree that I just let it sit there and let them decide, and then I play whichever one mana spell is left over. I'll never cycle the opt again. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is it is one of those things where you go, oh, man, it'd be sweet. I mean, sure, if you draw a land and you needed a land... Like, if I was had a really low land hand, right, and I was like, oh, my God, I need this opt to make sure oh, that, yeah. I, that yeah. I get land, then, yeah, I would fire off opt right away because I'm just looking for a land, and it's kind of like if they if I don't get a land, I'm in trouble anyway. Yeah, Dave so, already blew a hole in my crappy heuristic from a card I barely cast. Your <laughs> crappy heuristic of never cycle the opt into Thoughtseize. But there's yeah. there's a big yeah, there's a big big hole in that. Yeah. All right. So um we see Grixis Death Shadow uh, winning a lot lately. It's a deck I definitely see at local game stores. Uh, how do you think it's best to fight it? Zach, my dude, I think you are okay. the person who has a lot of thoughts on this. I do have a lot of thoughts on this. So I play against Grixis Death Shadow quite a bit, and um, I have sort of tuned in against how to beat it and uh, put a lot of thought into this. So I think the best way to sort of go against this deck or to attack it is mana base, because these decks don't run a lot of land. Some are only running 17, for instance, and they're also only running one to three basics, probably two to three basics. So because of this, I think Blood Moon is a card that's super good. So it's a card that you can consider sideboarding and bringing in. It's a good card anyway, but if they're not smart and they don't fetch around it, you can cut them off entirely from blue, which is several powerful cards we've mentioned, Thought Scour and Stubborn Denial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you, sometimes you simply can't fetch around it because you didn't get your fetches. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But let's talk about this real quick, just from the, the death shadow side, unknown opponent game one, you got to keep an eye out for people who are playing lands that fit the profile of blood moon decks. Absolutely. Right. Because you got to You should aggressively search up that basic Island 
if you need it and that basic or that basic swamp depending on how your hand is looking because yeah. you, you really have to manage your optionality here because you can get so greedy and then just get blown out by blood moon now you still can use a little bit of that red mana but it's not that good so um just something to keep in mind as someone playing death shadow knowing that that blood moon is super super bad for the deck you yeah, just have, to, have to get times. those basics don't be greedy for no reason yeah and uh to follow that up on the same note and a card i've mentioned on this podcast before i think molten rain is a particularly good card because it it does get that damage in and it does push the game but also can destroy basic lands so it can destroy that single island they have and it's also just also powerful with blood moon for, for that reason so i think that and this is also obviously coming from my personal perspective and the cards i play but i think if you are able to run blood moon or molten rain in your sideboard they are cards i would bring in against this deck Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, another one, of course, is a bunch of lightning bolts. By sure. The way, yeah, because so we've talked a little bit about burn, but a deck that basically plays chicken with its life total. I mean, how many lightning bolts do you play around as as a death shadow player? Right, you can play around one, but it's harder for two, and definitely impossible for three. I mean, if do you do you stop at nine if you know you're against a deck with a bunch of lightning bolts, Shane? What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard that's kind of like the go-to sort of heuristic again. We're going to use this as our word of the day. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you you typically don't want to go below like a couple bolts. I think. But how how bad is a one mana four four vanilla four four? I mean, it enables all of your enables your uh, your team or battle rage and your stubborn denial. So maybe it's that's not that enough. bad. Yeah. Maybe not that bad. Yeah. I mean, I always feel weird about trying to attack in with a uh, 4-4 with Battle Rage up, where I'm like, cool, I guess I could use this as a Lava Axe, which is yeah, like, it's, it's not, not that great. good. I mean, you really want Team or Battle Rage to be there to turn. I mean, <clears throat> you kind of want Team or Battle Rage to be better than become immense. You right. know what I mean? And so um, it gets a little dicey there against against that, trying to figure out where to stop losing life. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons it runs like eight hand disruption spells is if, you know, you can cast them late in the game to kind of clear the way or to see what's in your opponent's hand to see, okay, can I go for the alpha strike here? Yeah. Because if an opponent's trying to hold up a number of spells to get through your counter magic or to, you know, punish you for like attacking and being like, okay, uh, street race, street wraith, uh, dismember, um, deal 13 you know or deal 12 rather then they can just punish you with the with the burn spells on the on the way back right excuse me when you're attacking in so yeah that that the eight hand disruption spell certainly can help through that yeah all right so we have um land disruption and we have extra burn or direct damage as a way to punish them what's the third one the graveyard disruption yes so another thing that is particularly good versus uh, this sort of deck is Graver Disruption. As we've said, they have these delve threats they can get out as soon as turn two. And having a 5-5 a five five or other assorted large creatures come out that soon is not particularly great. So being able to get rid of their graveyard uh, with something like Rust in Peace is good. Uh, also with cards like uh, Relic or Tormod's Crypt or other artifact cards, uh, be sure to keep an eye on general, keep an eye on how many cards they have in their graveyard, because there are times you can have sort of gotcha moments with them when they have maybe four cards in their graveyard and they have two lands out, one's a fetch, and they crack that land and you realize, oh, then they have enough mana to do Gurmag. If you could exile their graveyard right there, it's a huge tempo swing in your favor. Yeah. 
I think it's a great point. Graveyard hate is sort of surprisingly effective against this deck. One of the things that comes up in the land destruction conversation is also Field of Ruin, which is pretty popular in modern these days, especially among control decks. And I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but if you're playing a Field of Ruin deck and you're up against GDS, target their red sources with Field of Ruin because they so seldom run basic mountains that you could really cut them off. Yeah. Do you know why they don't run basic mountains, by the way? No. So so I think that the reason that most of the decks don't run basic mountains is because the land disruption that they're expecting is Blood Moon. Yes. And so they know that if someone plays Blood Moon against them, they'll still have red mana. Exactly. So if you have, it's a great point to say, if you have non-Blood Moon, Blood Moon disruption, it's great to target red sources because it really messes things up, especially as far as team or battle rage goes. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, I have a question for you. Yes. What would you call a card that's a single blue mana scry to draw a card? Serum Visions. Typically, that's called Preordain. Postordain. Yeah. Yeah. Preordain. Yeah. So that card is not in modern, right? Right. But it is in Death Shadow because of Street Wraith. Yeah, Street Wraith is great. It's like Dave was going like they, like Dave was talking about earlier in the episode is that there's so many little things that work together well with this deck. Just as an example, if you have just a single fetch land and a Mishra's Bobble and a Street Wraith, you can uh, use your Mishra's Bobble to scry. And if you like what you see, then you Street Wraith it and then you fetch so that you get the card you want. It's just all those stupid little things that work together. Yeah, yeah. I think what we're really talking about is sequencing just becomes important in this deck and something you want to think about because it's not always clear immediately what spell to cast first in a turn, but because of all the free spells in this deck, sometimes you may want to consider how you want to cast them or at least in what order. Sure, consider the free option. It's extremely hard to play. Yeah, I think it's pretty difficult to play too. Having never played it, I'm going to go on a limb and say it seems pretty easy. Oh, good. <laughs> I think one of the hardest things in Magic is sequencing. Yeah, absolutely. And this deck just takes it to the max. Oh, yeah. It, take, it takes not only your sequencing, but also your understanding of your role in the game and your understanding of what your opponent's trying to accomplish. And so it really, it's not, you're not operating all by your lonesome out there when you're playing Death Shadow. You're playing one of the most interactive games of magic that you can play that really requires you understanding your role in the matchup and the, the decks that you're going to play against. I mean, absolutely. We, we talked about how you have to know to sometimes crack your fetch for an Island on turn one and like, might not be able to thought seize because of it, because of what a deck your opponent might be on. Like knowing those sort of literal card by card meta micro decisions. And if you make one wrong one, it could lead to a defeat. Mm-hmm. Dave, are you going to keep playing GDS after our conversation today? Uh, I I do like the deck. I I'm I might be going in for some deep runs on hardened scales, but I think the two decks I'm going to play over the next month or so are going to be GDS and hardened scales. Yeah, so. good idea. I like it. All right, cool. Well, I I learned a lot, and uh, I'm more encouraged to try this deck out since it's playing two of my favorite cards which is lightning bolt and snapcaster mage stan you know about the tattoo i want to get right on my knuckles i want to get r one u r on my knuckles 
Because of Bolt Snap Bolt. Do you want to get the letters or the mana symbols? Both. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure, I'll get that tattoo with you. Why not? Let's get it together, Stan. Just the knuckles of our right hand. All right, that's cool. I need to save my left hand for marriage. Okay. Perfect. All right, let's wrap this up. Take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to go into the wind down portion, which is as I like to say, the best portion of the podcast. Stay with us. All right, and we're back. So before we put a pin in this week's episode, I want to talk really quick about an awesome video I saw online, which I think has some important takeaways for modern players and and all magic players in general, which was an interview on Tolarian Community College between the professor and R&D individual at Wizards of the Coast, Gavin Varhey. R&D individual. That's that's what's on his business card. R&D superstar. Product architect is his title, by the way. And he's like 28 years old, by the way. He's not that young. He's been working at Wizards for a long time, if that's true. He said he was. On, he video. was on podcasts when I started playing Magic again around Zendikar. Holy moly. Yeah, so he's he's often considered one of the architects of modern. Uh, you know, he didn't fully design everything in the format, but he was working on it concurrently with Wizards. And I think once they brought him on board, he helped really take it over the finish line and becoming the format that we have today. Yeah, but the video was really about the professor's interest in how the heck are you going to keep supporting modern when you are axing master's sets. Props to the prof, who's definitely still listening to our podcast at this point, for being so good at asking Gavin pretty hard questions. And it was a long interview. It was an hour long, and he really pushed him and spoke on behalf of the consumer, which I think is really cool because... Sometimes when you talk to Watsi, they have their best intentions in mind and they love the game and they're making this game good. But there's so much secrecy about upcoming products and the plans that R&D have that they're almost never forthcoming about what's coming out unless they're ready to promote a product. So the professor really taking Gavin, you know, not to town, but asking repeatedly what's going to happen with fetches and what's going to happen to reprints and whether modern as a format is going to live on was really reassuring. Yeah. So I took some notes throughout the video and although you should watch it, it is an hour long. And some of the most important takeaways that I heard were that even in a post master set world of magic, they're just going to redistribute reprints and important reprints that players want and more products, including some products that we're not even aware of yet. So big if true. I don't think that it's too surprising given what's happened with things like conspiracy and battle bond recently that there there's generally cards that people wanted there, but I think it's good to be reassured that the plan is nothing that feels like it's going to be too crazy radical as far as how they're going to reprint cards that people want. The other thing that I thought was really cool that Gavin said was just, hey, we know what cards people want to be reprinted and we're trying to actively figure out how to do it. It was just kind of nice to have some reassurance that it was kind of like, hey, we're not oblivious. We know that this is not a problem, but that it's a a market pressure and that we would like people to um, understand that we're trying to fix it in the ways that we can. 
Absolutely. And I, I just want to touch on the point real quick or a theme that I ran through there of wanting to not put modern staples in products that are designed for casual players, which I think is something that I've come really around to. And I get that it's probably not good to put a ton of value into these guild kits or whatever that are more designed for casual players because they're going to be unavailable and these players aren't going to have the products they want because I want my two fetches. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and fetches was a card type that came up several times throughout the video, and the professor pushed Gavin on why they weren't appearing in every or more modern sets and only appeared in just the one. So for what it's worth, Gavin said... Reprint equity. Yeah, I mean, that's one of it, but his position is they're going to happen. They're just waiting for the right opportunity. So at least that's an olive branch we have for the future. I mean, the most important thing is that when asked about you know, is modern at risk in terms of the, the viewpoint from wizards R and D you know, is, is, is modern at risk for new formats coming along? Is it at risk for the support from the reprints and from the, the, the cards that get released? And Gavin was, was very adamant that, you know, he loves modern, that uh, many people within uh, R and D love modern. He says, you know, the future of modern is very strong. And they're going to continue to release products to support it. It's not going anywhere. So that could put us at a little bit of ease because it wasn't it wasn't really a hedgy answer, in my opinion. It sounded very truthful in terms of the way he he expressed it. Yeah, I mean, I think that every probably all four of us believe that there will be another eternal format between modern yes. and standard at some point. Yeah, he was pretty explicit uh, about that. I think. Yeah, don't absolutely. know where that's going to be. Our my my sus my suspicion is always where arena starts basically will be the next uh, eternal format, but it's good to hear that they're, they will continue to support modern and be honest. It's in their financial interest too, because all the cards that are cool and modern are not on the reserve list. So they can print them and people, and they want to support it so that people want them so that they can print them to print more money. So there's a whole kind of cycle there that lets Watsi have a sustainable card pool that they can uh, go back to every once in a while to put more cards in circulation that people want. I, I would like to, th- by the way, I was going to say before we get off this topic, I would like to thank the professor for putting great content out there and um, giving us something to talk about and that you guys should definitely go and support him because he's the one scoring these interviews and putting out the excellent videos and things like that. I would venture to bet Magic would look a little different today if he wasn't out there advocating for consumers and Magic players and using his very large platform to speak to Watsi. And getting people from Watsi to listen and, and talk with them about it. For sure. I think that about wraps up this week's episode of The Dive Down. Except I have something I would like to say. Please, Dave. <gasps> really quick. <clears throat> and that is just that I had a really great 40th birthday weekend. And there were lots of different parts of it. My wife threw me an excellent party. Shane came into town. We got to play a bunch of magic. But everybody from our play group um, surprised me with a a draft of my favorite limited format on the the day of my party. Uh, and it was just really touching to walk into a room, not really knowing what was happening and have all the people that I love to play magic with uh, standing there ready to do a draft uh, and completely uh, just really touched me. So I just wanted to thank everybody for that. Um, and also point out that I lost, unfortunately, in the finals of that draft to our friend, Scott Kane. Yeah, the new uh, the new king of Chaos Lace Magic. Right, Chaos Lace, which is the name of our Slack channel for our friends in Chicago who we play magic with. 
and um, I lost to him, but I also just wanted to throw out a, a promo for his wonderful show that's on YouTube that's called Tapped. Oh, yeah. Good show. Uh, that's kind of a fun magic talk show. It's much more kind of um, sort of like a magic lifestyle news kind of thing than than our show, which is much more strategically face, facing. But I think you guys should check it out if you can. And I also wanted to thank uh, Shane for coordinating, getting all those people together. Oh, my pleasure. And Eric and Eric. Uh, M for hosting and, and helping everybody have a place to go. So really just want to thank everybody from the bottom of my heart. Oh yeah. My I also want to point out uh, real quick that we are, uh, we are all on episodes of tapped. So if you like hearing our takes, like hearing our jokes, you can watch us on that show that we just plugged. Oh yeah. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Zach and I are on episode one. Dave is on episode two and Shane is on episode three. So watch them in that order. One, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> now you may you may proceed to the the end thanks thanks dave happy birthday to you again we love you very much oh thank you so much all right so thank you all for sticking around that has been another episode of the dive down you can find us on twitter at the dive down you can shoot us an email the dive down at gmail.com or if you see us on reddit where we post about all of our episodes leave us a comment we want to hear from you. As always, huge thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music on our show. Nowhere is the intro music and Spaceblood is used throughout the episode and at the end. If you like our show, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes because that helps people that haven't heard us discover us. Until next time, remember to shuffle seven times and wish your opponents good luck. And high five.